All right, good morning. Good to see everybody here, and uh, what a great day and time of year we're having right now. Uh, except somewhere along the way, we're coming up on that season of the year where I always feel like I made a wrong turn and went to Alaska because the northern lights are shining. You know, it's dark at 4.30 and somebody said the other night they woke up at midnight and looked at their watch and it was 6.30. And... Uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So take God's Word this morning and turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be looking at just a few short verses this morning. Uh, in this passage, we're going to find Jesus calling sinners to discipleship. Um, if he didn't, none of us would be followers of Christ. Now, before we read our scripture for our message this morning... <clears throat> I want to engage you in a little audience participation. <laughs> uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to begin the message by uh, me reciting some verses out loud. But as I recite these verses, I am going to pause at a certain point in the verse where I'm leaving out a word and I want you to say out loud the word that I'm leaving out. Got it? Okay. Are you ready? Now, this first one is just for practice. All right? So I'm going to toss you a softball right off the bat. You ready? Okay. For God so loved the All right. Look at you go. That he gave his one and only son that whoever Believe. believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, all right, now you're warmed up. All right, <laughs> here's two more. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still, Christ died for us. Man, you guys are incredible. Y'all are in fuego. So here's the last one. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his, his friends. friends. And these verses affirm a truth that is taught in our text this morning. And the truth that is taught in our text is one that runs actually throughout the Bible. And that is that Jesus, the friend of sinners, calls us to be friends of sinners. Jesus came seeking the lost. And our scripture this morning tells us that he favors those who are outsiders. He favors the religious rejects. He favors those that others consider to be a lost cause and this is what we find him doing. When we read Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 9, you follow along with me as we read those verses together. Starting at verse 9, it says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. 
Now, while he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that when you came into this world, you humbled yourself, you, you set aside all the heavenly privileges that were yours at the right hand of the Father and chose to come into this world because you loved us and you hung on a cross and died because you'd rather die for us than live without us. And you opened a door for our relationship with our Creator to be restored. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me, a sinner. And I give you praise and thanks in your name, the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, if you read Matthew's gospel, this is his story. This is it. I mean, what was it? Just a few verses. You'd think the guy would blow his own horn, toot his own horn a little bit more than that. But it's a simple story. It's concise. It's short. And not to forget that it's modest. But in these few verses, we are taught some valuable lessons. And the first lesson that we learn is that Jesus calls us as we are. Now go back and look at the text and notice in verse 9, the scripture says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, Follow me. Other gospel writers share their accounts of Matthew's call. Mark 2.15 is a parallel passage. Luke chapter 5, verse 27 is a parallel passage. In those passages, we learn that Matthew is called Levi, and this is not unusual. Uh, Jews often had more than one name, many times two or three names. And so this was not all that unusual, but Mark and Luke refer to him as Levi, not Matthew. But also it is from these gospel writers that we learn that he was a tax collector. Now, the tax office was the toll booth that you read about in uh, this ninth verse that was set up along a highway, and it was set up along the highway because uh, the person who was seated at the toll booth 
charged taxes on the merchandise that would pass by that particular toll booth on that road. And so you had these tax collectors who were stationed there. And, um, uh, you know, not to bring up a sore subject, but we're right around tax season. It won't be long before our taxes are due for this year. And tax collectors are not particularly well-liked. And this was the case with Matthew. Because in his day, tax collectors were known not only to charge the tax that was due on the merchandise, but to charge a little bit extra and to line their pockets with the extra without having to report that income to anyone. And so they enriched themselves off the taxes of other people. So common was this practice that a popular saying became, all tax collectors are thieves. <laughs> what a reputation. But Matthew was also despised because he was Jew and he was collecting taxes from his fellow Jews as a representative of the Roman occupiers. And he was detested for the reason that his countrymen considered him to be a traitor. Further, he was despised by the Pharisees because he came into direct contact with the Romans who were Gentiles. And the Jews had strict requirements in terms of how to maintain one's cleanliness. And so the Pharisees didn't want to have anything to do with anyone who had come into contact with Gentiles because they would become ceremonially unclean. Are you getting the picture here? I mean, being a tax collector was about as low as you could go. And Jesus knew that. Yet Jesus is drawn to those who welcome him. And to none is he more welcome than to those who feel themselves to be sinful. Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, met Matthew where he was and called him as he was. Do you remember where you were when Jesus called you? For some of us, that was a long time ago. And layer upon layer of scripture and prayer and church attendance has built on top of it until the distance between where we are spiritually now is light years from where we were before, so much so that we forget what we were when Jesus found us. Jesus calls us as we are. You don't get good to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus as you are. And he welcomes you. But there's a second lesson we learn, and that is that Jesus changes our pursuits in life and gives us a new purpose for living. Verses 9 and 10, continuing on, it says, He said to him, Follow me. 
And he got up and he followed him. And while he was reclined at table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. I love this part of the story because it teaches us that following Jesus brings change to our pursuits in life. Now remember, Matthew's a Jew. He's not a well-liked Jew. He's been rejected by his own people. No respectable Jew would have anything to do with Matthew. He's fully aware of what others think of him. And he has reached a point in his life where perhaps he has given up all hope that things can be different for him. He does not have any friends among the respectable Jewish community. And so... What hope does he have that his course in life will change? Who would want to have anything to do with him? And then along comes Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, who wants to associate with him. And he had a lucrative business. But Matthew can't believe a Jewish rabbi wants to associate with him. What do you think he does? He jumps at the opportunity. He leaves a lucrative business and he follows Jesus. And the reason why he leaves his lucrative business is because he's had money and he's had all the things money can buy Except he's lounged and lived long enough in life to see that money can't buy happiness. Money can't buy love. Money can't buy acceptance. Money cannot buy happiness and forgiveness. Now, we're not told what previous contact Matthew and Jesus may have had with one another. We, we must assume that they must have known each other perhaps previously, and had some contact. For, for one, the toll booth was stationed on the main road that ran through Capernaum. It'd be impossible to go along that road and not come across a tax collector. And so perhaps they had seen one another, perhaps they'd even spoken to one another. It seems to me pretty obvious that they had some knowledge of each other. Others had given up on Matthew They saw him as a despicable sinner. Jesus saw Matthew's potential. Jesus was the only law-keeping Jew who ever took an interest in Matthew. He wanted to associate with him. And the text tells us that instead of Matthew continuing to pursue money, what does he do? He pursues Jesus. Following Jesus brought change in his pursuits in life. But we also see that following Jesus brought change to his purpose for living. Luke's gospel says... Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with him. Matthew's simple version of the story just jumps right into the banquet. He doesn't give us any warm-up 
as to how the banquet came about. He simply says that many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew's a changed man. I mean, what we see when we look at Matthew is we see him having this conversation with Jesus. Again, we're not told the conversation in Scripture, but somewhere along the way, we assume Matthew has been invited by this Jewish rabbi, come, follow me. I see your potential. I see what you can become. And he follows Jesus. And as he's following Jesus, what he begins to see is he begins to see that, hey, this is something nobody has ever offered me before. And so what does he do? He comes to Jesus and he says, is, is, is this for everyone? And Jesus says, yes. And then Matthew says, well, can I host a banquet at my house and invite my friends to come hear this? And Jesus says, absolutely. Now, who do you think attends the banquet? <laughs> well, it's not those who consider themselves clean. It, it, it's not the religious insiders. It's not the spiritually healthy. But the scripture tells us other sinners. It names tax collectors, but prostitutes, drunkards. Who shows up at Matthew's house? Sinners. Christ's mission was to seek and save the lost. To help sinners be restored to a right relationship with God. You know, a few years ago, my wife and I were on a flight to Denver, Colorado. And we were going to visit some friends of ours. And I looked over and my wife keeps a stack of books that she's reading. And I saw in her briefcase a book that she was handling, but she wasn't reading. It was this book right here. The title of the book is The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Are you familiar with it? And the author of the book is uh, Rosario, Rosaria Butterfield. And so I asked her, well, can I read the book? Now, you know, it's a couple hour flight to Dallas and then you know, we link up another flight to Denver. So I had a few hours, and I began to read this book. I couldn't put it down. I mean, I read it all the way there, and I didn't complete it, but there is a return flight. <laughs> and I finished the book while flying back to Nashville from Denver. It's a fascinating book. The gospel comes with a house key. Um, Rosaria was a Ph.D. from Ohio State University. She was a uh, professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University. You have to read the story. I don't want to skip a whole lot of things, but obviously I'm not going to tell you the whole book. But I do want to let you know that 
she came from a family where two parents were excommunicated Catholics. Um, they ha were very responsible people in terms of holding a job, but they had their own issues. And Rosaria grew up in an environment where she made some life choices and then she became very defensive about her life, you know, her life choices. But in the book, she tells how God did not use an evangelistic conference to bring her to himself. He did not use a literary work to bring her to himself. He used a simple invitation of a modest couple who invited her to come into a humble home and to just sit down and enjoy a meal with them. And at first, she was antagonistic as she learned that they were believers in Christ. They didn't lead with that. They simply welcomed her offered her hospitality, and over time, she made a decision to trust Christ. It would not have happened had they not invited her into their home. You know, in our pew racks, I want you to reach forward, and I want you to find this card right here it says plus one on it just everybody grab one if not take one down pass it around mm -hmm. pull it out and look at that card with me it says plus one on one side it 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 has a prayer guide for the week other things that you can add to it to be praying about <clears throat> the side i want you to look at is this side the one that says plus one and then it's got some i will I wills. So in addition to coming to worship this week and worshiping the Lord, it's got things like, you know, I'll read my Bible every day this week. But if you'll look down there, you'll notice that item number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven says this, host one family that I do not know well in my home this quarter. Who can you invite into your home? Now, I didn't mention this when I shared the title with you, but the subtitle of Rosaria Butterfield's book is Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. Now, those last three words grabbed my attention. I'm sure they grabbed yours. Post-Christian World. I, I wasn't born in this century. I was born in the last. But I can tell you this. Too many churches have rested on the idea that they have the home field advantage.
Statistics, however, show the America in which we live has changed dramatically in the past 50 years. Some of the changes are good, some are not so good. And I want to illustrate the change by citing some statistical data. A Gallup poll in 1968, that's ancient history for some people. A Gallup poll in 1968 found that only 9% of Americans said they had no church background. Ten years later, in 1978, the Gallup poll found that that number had increased to 17%. Nearly 30 years later, in 2007, a study conducted by the Barna Research Group found that 29% of Americans had no religious affiliation. Now that statistic is even more eye-opening when you look inside that 29% and you start studying it by age groups. The Barna poll revealed that only 6% of the people over age 60 reported they had no faith while, and listen to this, one out of every four, that's 25%, of the respondents between the ages of 18 to 22 reported having no faith. Look around at this congregation. No, seriously. Do you ever pay attention to who's worshiping here? I'm looking out here, and I'm seeing a good percentage of people whose hair matches mine. So in light of these findings, I think that we as a church, if we're paying attention to Scripture, if we're following the story at all, I think we can connect some dots. And in light of these findings, I believe apostolic churches today should have four characteristics. Number one. The church utilizes its facilities and resources for the betterment of the community. How does the community see our church as being helpful to the community? We got all this money, we got all these resources. It's God's money. But by the way, the facilities are God's also. 
this is not our church, this is God's church. If it's our church, we're in real trouble. And if it's God's church and we're following this story at all, we see that we will leverage whatever facilities and whatever resources we have to better our community. Number two, the church targets non-Christians and skeptics, not those who are already saved. We can't focus our attention just on the saved only. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. Third, the duty of ministry is trusted to the laity, not just the hired pastoral staff. Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. That's the role of the pastoral staff. It is not our role to do all the hospital visits. To teach all the classes. By the way, I've met a ton, and I know in this church, a ton of people who are far more qualified at doing many kinds of ministry better than I. And I would gladly hand it over to them and trust them with that responsibility. A fourth characteristic is this. The test of a congregation's faithfulness is in reformed lives and changed communities, not the satisfaction of its members. Now I want you to think about it this way. Every week, our church gets a report card. Every week. We don't see it, we don't think about it, but we get a report card every week. 50% of our grade comes from the church members. But I think many of us have just completely forgotten that the other 50% of our grade comes from the community, those outside the church. So let me ask you this question. What kind of grade do you think the community would give our church? Now, now let me bring that a little closer to home. What kind of grade would they give you? Well, Brother Sid, where did you come up with those four characteristics? I didn't come up with them. I read them in an article written 15 years ago. You know, they say Baptist churches always run five years behind society. You're working on a laptop in your office, and we're back there with a the selectric. 
until somebody says, man, we ought to get some computers at the church five years after they've been out. As disciples of Jesus, our mission is to engage people where they are and to build bridges so that we can earn the right to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Number three, I see in our text that Jesus commissions us to extend God's mercy to others. Look at verses 11 through 13. Now, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I don't know that that's the way they ask it. You do it in your own voice. It's probably a little bit more like, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when he heard this, he said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, I can't help but believe that's tongue-in-cheek. Because obviously all people are sinners, right? Scripture, even the Old Testament Scripture says, there is none righteous, no, not one. The Old Testament says our works are as filthy rags. We can't earn our way to heaven. So Jesus, in our story, goes outside the norms of religion to show God's mercy to sinners. And what happened? The religious objected. I mean, you look at the passage, and what does Jesus do in response? Well, you know, he doesn't get into a shouting match with them. Instead, what you read is, he knows the Pharisees' familiarity with the Scriptures, and so he quotes a portion of Hosea 6.6, just a portion, not the whole verse, just a portion of it, which says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, in Judaism, what this is called is it's called a remez. A remez is a hint. It was a technique for teaching a lesson by referring to a verse or a part of a verse in order to get your students to focus on that verse, but more than that, to look at the verses around the statement so that they can remember the context of why it was said and thus learn the truth of it. So when Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6, he just gives us a little snippet from it. But when he quotes it, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you know what happens. This passage just explodes in the minds of the Pharisees. What does Jesus say? He says, well, you need to go back and you need to look at that again. So Jesus says, go and learn what this means. Now, I don't expect all of you to be at the same level as the Pharisees, so I'm going to ask you to look with me to the book of Hosea, and I want you to listen to the context 
of this verse. In Hosea 6, beginning at verse 4, we read this. What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? What am I going to do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist and like the early dew that vanishes. This is why I have used the prophets to cut them down. I've killed them with the words from my mouth. My judgment strikes like lightning. For I desire faithful love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But they, like Adam, have violated the covenant. There they have betrayed me. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with bloody footprints. Like raiders who wait in ambush for someone, a band of priests murders on the road to Shechem. They commit atrocities. I've seen something horrible in the house of Israel. Ephraim's promiscuity is there. Israel is defiled. A harvest is also appointed for you, Judah. That's the context of Hosea 6.6. But did I need to read that? I mean, the moment you heard the word Hosea, you, you remembered the story of Hosea, right? I mean, when he starts out, he is called by God, and God says, Hosea, I want you to go and take a prostitute to be your wife. Now, this is God speaking. Man, I don't know. That's, that'd be tough. But he obeys and he does it. And God says to him, Hosea, the reason why I'm wanting you to do this is because your life story is going to be a story of my relationship with Israel and you're going to preach to the nation and call them to repentance, but I'm going to use your life as an illustration. So he takes a prostitute as his wife. What happens, he marries her, he shows her all his love, he gives her all his possessions, he brings her into his house and she leaves him and goes to another man. He brings her back and she leaves and goes to another man and she's passed from man to man to man, and then God says to Hosea, Hosea, she's on the block for sale. And back then, when you were sold as a slave, because you see, she's so run down, she's not worth anything anymore. She's a reject. Nobody wants her. But when you sold a slave in those days, they were stripped naked. She's standing in the middle of the square, naked. And the bidding begins. And after the bidding dies down, Hosea offers his bid. And the gavel goes down sold. Hosea buys his wife back and says, you were once mine now you are mine again, and you will love me and be faithful to me. So what's this Hosea passage about? 
It's directed to disobedient Israel. God's rebuking the religious leaders. And Matthew places the call of Jesus on his life here, in this place, in his gospel. But not accidentally. But rather he links his call to the teaching on forgiveness, which immediately precedes this event. Which was what? Jesus forgave the sin of the paralytic. Remember the guys tore the roof apart and lowered the guy down in the room? And what did Jesus do? He didn't heal him first. He forgave his sins. And then he healed him. Because forgiveness is our greatest need. Hello, do you hear Matthew in this? Man, I had money. I had a lucrative position. I was set. But what I needed was forgiveness. What I needed was restoration. My whole relationship with God had been lost. And Jesus' words point back to Israel's calling from the beginning the father of Judaism is Abraham and Abraham when he was called the scripture says in Genesis 12 verses 2 and 3 I will make you a great nation I'll bless you I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you Where does Jesus set up his ministry headquarters? In Capernaum. A city by the Sea of Galilee that is located on an international highway. It is the main thoroughfare from west to east. And why does he do that? He does it in keeping with Israel's calling to be a blessing to the nations. To the Pharisees, Jesus is saying, God wants you to be a blessing to the nations, to show what God's compassion, love, and forgiveness look like. But instead, you're showing the Lord empty piety. I want, I want mishpat. Mishpat is a Hebrew word that means justice, equality, to treat people equitably, regardless of race, regardless of social status. Jesus is saying to them, I want tzedakah. That's righteousness, literally. But you have to understand that this word is used over and over again in Jewish history. And it has a meaning to them that is unique to their culture. Because it is a word that is synonymous with charity. But boy, when we hear the word charity, we Westerners, our minds go in the direction of thinking, you know, it's kind of a random act of generosity. 
It's a step along the ladder of being a generous person. You know that you have, see somebody in need, you might give to that person. But not for the Jewish people. For the Jewish people, generosity was a lifestyle. Generosity was expected. Regardless of your financial situation, you were expected to show generosity to others. And Jesus' words are not lost on the Pharisees. I mean, they know the context of Hosea 6, and they get what Jesus is saying. Man, he thinks we have totally missed our calling. And Jesus could not have said it any more clearly. I'm fulfilling Hosea 6.6. You're abolishing it. You missed the whole point of what the prophets came to tell us. I'm showing what the prophets came to tell us by eating with tax collectors and sinners and welcoming outsiders and restoring them to a right relationship to God. But you have omitted that. Instead, you give me empty sacrifices. You know what Jesus says to Matthew? He says to you today. And I don't know who you are. I don't know where you are. I just know that Jesus knows exactly where you are. And he calls you as you are. And this is what he says. Follow me. Are you tired of life as you have known it up to this point? Have you had enough sin? Do you want a new life? Then Jesus says, here I am. Come and get it. And to us as his disciples, he says, follow me. Follow me. Now I don't know as much about fishing. (laughs) as I know some of you do. But I know a little. And one of the things that I know about fishing is it's smelly business. If you're a fisherman, you're going to smell like the fish you catch. What was Jesus' invitation to his first disciples? Follow me and I'll make you. There you go again, filling in the blank. Folks, I see a church that needs to become smelly. I want to point this out to you because there are people listening. I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. Um, Jesus associated with sinners, but he didn't condone sin. 
Friends don't encourage friends to run to do evil. And Jesus calls sinners to discipleship. And as his disciples, we should not condone sin nor avoid sinners. Following Christ requires sacrifice and obedience. But Jesus would say, and did say, but not to the exclusion of showing mercy. Let's stand together for prayer. Lord, I know that this week in reading this passage and preparing this message and issuing this charge that I have a lot to think about, but I shouldn't have to think about it too long. There are a lot of things in this message that I myself need to act upon. Today, if you're in this place and you hear Jesus' call on your heart, follow me, then follow him. Do as Matthew. Don't debate. Don't delay. Immediately follow Jesus. You know, we're here as a church staff to help you in your decision to follow Christ. And following this worship service this morning, if it's your decision to follow Jesus, we'll be down here at the front and we want you to come and tell us, hey, today I made a decision. I want to follow Jesus. Can you help me? It may be today that you profess to be a follower of Jesus. And if you're like me, you've gone through a real time of uh, introspection, of soul searching. You know, I love it when God, the Holy Spirit, convicts us of things that really may or may not be a conversation with any other human being. It's simply we hear the voice of God, and so every act that we take is a response to His voice. And I pray that I'll do that, and that each of you will as well.